New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. What does it mean to be a good man in the 21st century? In today's culture, men are under extreme stress and too many have become anxious, angry, lonely, and depressed. We all know that men and women are different, but not always in these simplistic ways our society would have us believe. Today we'll be exploring a deeper understanding of the awakening masculine soul and what it means to be a good man in the 21st century. We'll explore how men can shed the crippling effects of what many have come to call the man box. And we'll also delve into the effects of what our guest calls the father wound. It's time for men to evolve and embrace the complexity, strength, and beauty of being a man and what that means for the women who love them. Our guide today in this quest is Dr. Jed Diamond. Jed Diamond is a licensed psychotherapist, a founding member of the American Society of Men's Health, and an internationally respected leader in the men's health movement. He's a founder and director of Men Alive, a health program that helps men to live long and well. Though focused on men's health, Men Alive is also for women who care about the health of the men in their lives. He's the author of many books, including My Distant Dad, Healing the Family Father Wound, The Irritable Male Syndrome, and 12 Rules for Good Men. Join us for the next hour as we explore the evolving masculine soul with our guest, Dr. Jed Diamond. I'm speaking with Jed by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Jed, welcome once more to New Dimensions. Oh, thank you, Justine. It's great to be with you. It's great to have you, and especially at this time. Um, let's just start off. I mentioned in the introduction the man box. What are the pressures on men that... Put, put him in this particular category? Well, it's interesting. I, I think there's a, a lot of pressures that are on men today. And what we call the man box, which are really a set of uh, strictures or demands that uh, many of us grew up with uh, uh, that tell us this is what men are supposed to be. When, when I grew up, 
there were things like, you, you must always be strong. Uh, you must always be decisive. Uh, you should never be weak. You should never fail. You know, all of these things then create expectations and demands, really, of how we're supposed to be in order to be a man. And if we fail at those things or we're not, you know, the, the kind of man that, you know, is good at all those things, then we feel inadequate or less manly or in some way, you know, we get criticized, we'd be called sissies or girly or we're, we're basically put down for not living up to these. And increasingly, these are strictures that uh, more and more men are saying, this is not who I am, it's not who I want to be, and it's not who really the, the, the kind of man that we want to be good fathers, to be good partners, wants to be and needs to be in today's world. Well, that just begs me to ask the question, what about those men who have not recognized that pattern and who have just, you know, they're just repeating it over and over, being more and more frustrated and depressed? Well, I think for all of the people, at least that I see, as you know, I'm a, I'm a psychotherapist. I work with men and women. Uh, and when people come to me, it's usually at a point where their lives are not working in some way. So many of the men who come don't come saying, I've got a problem with my masculinity or I've got a problem because I'm inside the man box. You, know, you never hear that. What, what they say is, my relationship doesn't work. My wife you know, says she loves me, but she's not in love with me anymore. Or I'm always fighting. Uh, uh, we, we don't seem to get along as we used to. Uh, we're not having as much sex as we, we used to have. So in some way, they're saying some aspect of my life is not working. And even coming to me is often a big deal, that the part of the man box or part of the, the strictures are say, you don't ask for help if you're a man. You know, that's something maybe women do, but men take care of their business themselves. They, they, they don't, you know, whine, they don't complain, and they don't ask for help from others. So just for a man to get to the place where he asks for help says some aspect of his life is really not working, and he's somewhat desperate, or he's heard about me or read something that says, geez, he's, he's talking about a problem that makes sense to me, and maybe... Maybe he can help. You tell a story in the book that, that really illustrates the man box uh, in very early on in your own life. And, and this is really literally about a box of shoes. Uh, I'd love for you to share that story with our listeners. Well, this was uh, when I was a little kid, like uh, three, four years old. Uh, my mother took me to the shoe store. I was going to get my first pair of big boy shoes. Back then, the only shoes little baby young boys wore and girls were these little white booty kind of shoes. And now I was going to get big boy shoes. So we went to a shoe store and my eyes lit up because there were so many shoes of different color and shapes and sizes and 
And I, I, I saw a pair that I just fell in love with. They were a pair of red kids. And I said, oh, I want those. I want those. And back then, you know, they have the, the salesman that takes and fits your little feet and measures them and says, okay, we'll go in the back. And he comes back with, you know, two or three boxes of shoes, try on different sizes. And I'm all excited. He opens up the box and takes out. And sure enough, they're the Keds, but they're not red Keds, they're blue. And I thought, well, they must have got the wrong box. So I submit the other box, maybe. He opens out. It's just a different size of blue. I said, well, where are the red kids? And he explained to me and my mother. He said, well, you know, red is for girls. You know, blue is for boys. And these are the right shoes for you. And as though to say, we don't want the boy getting off on the wrong foot. And I... <laughs> I had never heard. First, I didn't know there were different color shoes at all. In my world, everything was white. But once I saw the ones I wanted, I said, "Red. That, I want the red kids." And he looked at my mother as though to say, "Can you know? We set the boy right." My mother, bless her heart, said, "Get the boy what he wants." And man went back, came out with the red kids. I put them on and danced out of the store. But that was my first kind of standing up for what I wanted and this recognition that somewhere in the world there are these standards of boys are supposed to be this way, girls are a different way. And in this case, they were color-coded. Blue was boys, red was girls, and since I was obviously a boy, I was in the wrong shoes. Right. I, I just love that story. It really illustrates that whole syndrome of how we categorize by gender certain things. I, I'd like to, to go into um, something about male violence. Uh, right now, we're in the late uh, spring of 2021, and even even right now, there have been four mass shootings in the U.S., uh, and just yesterday was one of them uh, in San Jose, California. And I know that you have something to say about the root cause of violence and male violence, so I'd love for you to speak about that and what that root cause might be. Well, I think the first thing we need to do to get at the, the core of violence in our country and in the world is to recognize the reality that this isn't just violence. This, as you point out, it's generally male violence. When you hear about mass shootings and the, the shooters, the killers, the, they're really men that we're talking about, but we don't look at it through a gender-specific lens. We don't ask, why is it that these men are killing? Why is that? And what you do here is, uh, let's look at gun laws and let's look at all, all important things. But the lens that I think we need to look at more closely is the lens that asks, why are so many of the shooters male? What is it about male psychology? What is it about male hormones, male physiology? Uh, 
male genetics even, male relationships, the man box, the social strictures that are were put in that are creating really at the core two very related and relatable issues. One is these are very angry and aggressive males. That's number one. Secondly, very often, they're also men that are wounded men, depressed, disconnected, and and in many ways, not feeling very manly. We have this notion that somehow violent men are men that are powerful, that are out to hurt people, and, and we look at the power imbalances. Well, men are in power, but the men that are doing these violent things, I suggest, and my research and my clinical work said, these are wounded men. These are men who have come from abusive backgrounds. And my experience has been, there isn't one man, and I've worked with thousands of men, thousands of men who are angry, irritable, some degree of violent, and there isn't one man that I've ever worked with that when you get to the root, when you look at his early life experience or his experience, you know, in his life, violence is part of his experience. He's been wounded in some ways. Let's talk more about this subject because it's a huge one. In just a moment, I'm reminding our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Jed Diamond. He's the author of 12 Rules for Good Men. And if you want to know about his work, you can go to his website, menalive.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Jed Diamond, and he's the author of 12 Rules for Good Men. And we're talking about men and violence, and you just were saying that these men frequently have had lethal violence uh, maybe afforded to them. They've, They've experienced that, especially maybe in their early life. Am I correct in saying that? Yes, somewhere in their backgrounds, they experienced violence themselves. They felt disrespected, disconnected, and sometimes either were victims of violence, they were beaten, they were uh, harmed as children or other times of their life, or they were 
saw their mothers hit or other family members hit somewhere, they experienced violence in their earlier lives? I think that one of the big words that that triggered me when I read it is that these men have experienced possibly um, great humiliation in their life. And that word humiliation, that just seems even more powerful than not respected. I mean, to be humiliated is really um, a, a terrible thing. Uh, do you have any comment on that? Well, they're on the same continuum of, of woundedness. Uh, you know, boys that have been shamed because they're called sissies, or uh, I've seen fathers, you know, put their own sons down. Hey, you know, you can't throw, or you throw like a girl. You know, these are forms of, of humiliation and put down when you're trying to be yourself. You're trying to be someone and somebody in your life that you respect, a father, an uncle, an older boy often, uh, or a woman in some way might say something that seems shaming to you or feels disrespected. Every man that's been, I've worked in prisons where people who are violent get locked up. And when you get to know them and you talk about what what triggered you to kill, to fight, to hit? And often he says, I was humiliated or disrespected. And there's, it's so prevalent that they even use a slang term. You know, he dissed me. He, he disrespected me. And that's such a, a part of male violence, male anger, male hurt, that if we don't understand that and we don't learn to heal that, we don't get at the root of violence or the root of how do we heal uh, all kinds of related woundedness in men. So you're saying to go underneath rather than going for the the solution like gun control or other things to name the problem correctly, to go to the root. Okay, what is the root of the problem? And that's what you're talking about right now, I think. Exactly. When I when I was in school, this is like fifty more than fifty years ago, when they would look at suicides, and often you'll see with the mass shooters, it's often a killing suicide. Very often it's both. But in studies where they used to look at suicides, and they would, after a suicide, they would have what was called a psychological autopsy. You'd have an autopsy that might look at the physical cause of death. Did this person die? What did they die of? But then you would go deeper. You'd, you'd have a whole panel that would interview family, friends, teachers, to find out what was going on with this person. What were the factors, the immediate factors that led to the suicide, the long-term factors? And I think we need something similar to that now with looking at violence that would not just go a cursory, well, why did he do it? And it often is a mystery. But you need a whole panel of experts who understand the various aspects, the psychological, the social, the interpersonal, that go, what is going on here? And then to bring together the ways that we could fix it. That's what's not going on 
we don't look deeply, we don't look closely, and we don't understand the gender lens that we need to look at that really focuses on what's going on with males. Now, I'm not a professional, but I would think, like, when we're talking about extreme violence like mass killings, for example, yesterday, the the man who went to the uh, transportation center in San Jose, California, and killed nine people and then committed suicide and killed himself, apparently, from what I understand from the news, he lived by himself, he lived alone uh, for, I think he was divorced for more than 10 years. He lived in a house alone. His neighbors said, well, you know, I noticed that there were no friends coming or going. And I had very little contact. I would say hello, but he, he was pretty much uh, not very sociable. So it just reminds me, like, if we see someone... Uh, who's really isolating themselves. Um, Is there any advice you have about noticing that and what we might be able to do to help someone like that? Well, often what we see is the isolation starts a lot earlier than this, where it ends. Um, And uh, the disconnections happen often starting in childhood, where they're not is connected or they're the odd person or they, uh, they, they don't make friends as easily or they're, they're, they're loners in some way. And then what happens with men different from women as we get older, the losses of connection increase. Where women as they get older often keep connections with girlfriends, family members, friends in the neighborhood, and if they lose connections, they gain new ones. Males continue to lose their connection, and that's one of the reasons why the suicide rate for males continues to rise when they hit 50 and older. It goes up and up and up and up, and for females, suicide rate goes down as they get older, and suicide and homicide risk are very similar. What we take out on ourselves, we take out on other people. So that point you're making of loneliness, disconnection, not having friends or feeling humiliated or feeling put down that then adds and and weighs on the man that causes him to isolate even more are some of the causes we need to attend to. I know that one of the... uh suggestions that you have that can turn the tide of this tendency is um, for men to join men's groups, to be with other men who are supportive in a very safe environment. And um, I, I really, you have to tell the story of being at a Silomar and I think you were with 800 women, and there were 12 men there. <laughs> and and tell tell that story about when you first thought, oh, I need a men's group. Well, exactly. Um, again, m- men are not as social as females. That's you know, males just aren't as social. We don't, you know, connect with others except through sports and through somewhat superficial connections, and yet we all need 
to be seen, to be heard, to feel really cared for. And, you know, my wife at the time was very interested in the women's movement and women's groups and women's support. And, and so there was a big conference that you're alluding to that was uh, uh, 800 women. And they said, yeah, this is something that men can go to. Well, I went to it with the idea, well, if I'm going to meet men that have this sensibility, that want to connect on a, a more personal, a deeper level, this would be the place where I'd meet them. And so in the course of the, the experience, they had the people get into small groups. And so I happened to, you know, get in a group with women because there were most of women. And they said, no, no, we want men to be in groups with other men. So I thought, oh, that's good. I'll get a chance to, these guys are going to really be the cream of the crop of communicators and open. And so in this little group of five or six of us, uh, so I said, so how are you feeling? I'm a little nervous here. And it was like I dropped a bomb in the middle and there was silence. And I said, well, you know, uh, I don't know. Do you play sports? Uh, what do you think of the, you know, the, the Dodgers, man, they're looking pretty good. And I was crestfallen. I just thought, oh, my God, maybe I'm the only one. Maybe I'm this weirdo that wants to connect more deeply with men. There were two things that saved me. One was women who were there who some were hostile. It was kind of like this was mostly a women's conference. And some of them were like, what are you guys doing here and kind of messing up our, our nice, cozy woman thing? But there were a number, probably more than were negative, were saying, hey, man, don't give up. You know, there there are men out there. Believe me, you know, don't give up. I'm glad you're here. We're supportive. And and I actually met some men that said, hey, we're doing a men's group. And, and I said, oh, great. Can I? So it turned out they were from New York and I was in California. But it it gave me the impetus to go, I'm going to I'm going to find a men's group or I'm going to start my own. And uh, I think you may know, I eventually found some men, started a group, and we've now been meeting continuously, regularly for 42 years. Isn't that wonderful? I love that. I love that. And I know that at some point, I'm not sure which, which circle this was in, maybe yours or you heard reported, there was a story which leads us to that father wound, so to speak, or that male attachment disorder. Uh, and that was when the little boy had um, a father who was a policeman and he would jump into his arms. Can you share that story? Yeah, this is one of my, one of my clients that uh, had uh, been one of those angry men. We talked about violence, but the truth is these extreme forms of violence are, are, are you know, although they're disastrous, they're just the tip of the iceberg where most of the violence happens is not at the extremes. It's in uh, domestic violence. It's in the home. It's in angry, irritable men that are yelling at their kids or yelling at their partners. And so this young man that I, I, I was seeing in, in counseling was uh, had problems in his life uh, with drug problems and alcohol problems, and he came for treatment. And it took him a long time before he opened up to me about some of his background, because I always ask, tell me a little bit about, you know, your, your family growing up. What was it like for you? 
And he told me this this story. This is after a number of months of counseling where he I trusted me enough that he could tell me this. And he said, you know, my, my father was a policeman. He was very proud. He started to, you know, have this childhood look in his eye like he did. Oh, my dad. And he said, I would, you know, dad would come home. I'd be waiting for him. And, and one of our little rituals was uh, I would climb up on the chair and then I'd leap through the air and he would catch me and swing me around. And it was such a good thing. And then he dropped me. Uh, we've got to take a break. So I want you to go back because in, and not j- just cut that story off. We're, I'm here with Dr. Jed Diamond. He's the author of 12 Rules for Good Men. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Jed Diamond, and he's the author of 12 Rules for Good Men. And if you want to know about his work, you can go to his website, menalive.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. And we're talking about uh, a client of yours who, who Jed, um, was ta- sharing a story when he was a little boy and he would his father would come home and he would leap into his father's arms until a certain point. What happened? Well, he, when he was telling this story. I was saying he it took him a long time to trust me to open this up. He had a drinking problem and drug problem and uh, he, he really was, was hurting in his life. And as I asked him more about his family life and what things were like growing up. And he finally told me the story uh, that his father was a policeman and he had this ritual where he would come home and the little boy would get up on a chair and and leap into his father's arms and his father would swing him around. And he, it was just, you could see his eyes lit up. And then it was though he remembered the rest of the story, which was one day he did the, the same thing. He got up on the chair, father came home, he leaped out, and his father turned and let him fall. He fell to the floor, hit his chin on the table and was bleeding. And his father, you know, grabbed him somewhat roughly and picked him up and, and said, uh, son, this is a lesson you need to learn. You can't trust anyone in this world, even your own father. And by the time he finished the story, I was in tears, and, and he was holding back tears. And what it told me is that there are many men like that, many boys like that, who grew up with fathers who themselves were wounded somewhere in their lives, but thought the way we need to teach our sons is to toughen them up. And this was obviously a very extreme uh, way to toughen your son up. But the idea was in the father's mind, he's going to experience adversity and he needs to learn early. The little boy's mind, what he learned was 
the dad that I trusted allowed me to, to, to be hurt and wounded. And there are many, many boys that grow up with, and girls, this isn't just a boy problem, grow up with fathers who are either distant, absent, or dysfunctional in some way. This would be a, an example of a dysfunctional father who's teaching his son a lesson but a lesson that's not meant to help him be a better caring person in the world and to learn who to trust and who not to trust, but to teach him a lesson that says you can't trust anyone. In your book, you, you're very transparent about your own process. And, and when you talk about these early childhood uh, wounds that especially relate to the father uh, relationship um you're you're talking about uh stuff that we carry on throughout our lives and even knowing that you you are very transparent when you say you were a psychotherapist and you were working psychotherapist but you yourself did not really grasp the um how that early childhood wounding in your own life was affecting your life as an adult, you know, in 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 feeling depressed or anxiety, or um, I think you had asthma, and it was affecting your actual physical health. So I, I'd love for you to share that with us. Yeah, well, I think there there, there are two factors that keep us from recognizing the effect of early trauma on our adult lives. One factor is that on the men's side, we're taught that we shouldn't experience any wounding. We shouldn't admit to any past hurts or pains. So we, we just hold it inside because it's not manly. The second, which I think affects everybody, male and female, is the view that Kids are are resilient, you know. Whatever problems they may have had, they get over it. You know, they're young, though. You know, it's it's not that bad. And it's only been really in the last twenty years that there's been very significant research uh, on what's called adverse childhood experiences or ACEs that really look at how common they are. That include things like abuse, neglect, and abandonment. But things as common as divorces, uh, fathers that may, you know, be uh, good fathers but just aren't around very much. And what they found is that not only are these hurtful as children, but as you grow up, these wounds affect not only our relational health, where we have trouble with relationships as as I, I did, I, you know, I went through two marriages uh, and divorces before I figured out, hey, maybe some of my early relationship experience with my parents might have some to do with that. But it also has been shown that these, these ACEs, these adverse childhood experiences affect our physical health, that we have higher rates of, in my case, asthma, lung problems. People have higher rates of of cancer, heart disease, and we're seeing that these things have core issues that go all the way back to childhood. And we're creating really a, a whole new 
way of healing and a whole new understanding of healing that instead of looking at what's the matter with you, what, what's your diagnosis, we're asking, what happened to you? What, what were the wounds that may be the ultimate core causes of these later problems that we have as adults? So what you're saying is that there's a, you can have the diagnosis of an illness and, and it's a physical disease diagnosis and you might get medication or whatever or get your arm put in a sling or whatever it is. But uh, you're talking about uh, the psychological trauma that, that needs to be looked at and as, as far as um, a diagnosis of looking at trauma. And that can actually be even larger uh, in some ways uh, to, is the cause of underlying health problems. Is that, am I reading that right? Absolutely right. Uh, what we're starting to learn is that these problems not only are related to what happened to us as children and happened to us early in our life, but these childhood experiences then make us more likely to have later problems experienced in adolescence, problems experienced in our adult life. Uh, and the good news is that uh, these can be healed. Uh, you can get at the root of these things and through new ways of uh, healing, you not only can, can, can make people feel better, but you can actually cure problems that have been chronic that have not been able to be cured through... Uh, you know, the traditional healthcare practices, either doctoring or mental health practices that diagnose and often give medications when often the deeper healing comes from getting at the root of the trauma that happened. Here we are in 2021, and I want to talk about unemployment, and I want to talk about the pressure on men to be the breadwinners. And in your own life, your father lost his job when you were quite young, I think, and under five years old, and your mother had to go to work, and your father ended up um, in a um, mental institution. I think, did, did, do I remember that he actually tried to commit suicide at some point? He, uh, he took an overdose of, of drugs. Uh, that's what was the, you know, the cause of him being then committed to the mental hospital. Absolutely. And then as a little boy, your uncle would take you to visit him. And I mean, that must have been in what that's in the 19, early 50s, I guess, in the 19 or late 40s. I'm, I'm not sure. And Mental hospitals look pretty different than they do today. That must have been frightening for you as a little boy. Well, it was. It was uh, frightening on a number of levels. Uh, you know, the first one was that uh, you know I was a little five-year-old kid and had memories of my dad hoisting me on his shoulders and and uh, taking me around piggyback in the park, and then one day. Uh, I, I came home and I was told that my father had been in an accident and he was in the hospital and I didn't know why or what. And what they told me was he had a, a quote, nervous breakdown. That was what uh, any kind of 
mental problems were called. It was a time where things were very stigmatized. And my mother didn't want to visit him for some reason. That's another part of the story, the family father wound with my mother's distance. But my uncle took me, and as you describe, uh, where he was was a snake pit. And uh, it was horrible, but I thought uh, in my child understanding of the breakdown, what I got was he had a breakdown because he couldn't support his family. He got depressed because he couldn't support his family. And in my child mind, I thought, well, I I must be the cause of that. If I hadn't come along and, and you know, necessitated support and then he would have been okay. So I felt somehow obligated to help him. And so I went with my uncle for a whole year as he got worse and worse and worse and, you know, had electroshock treatments, had medica- all kinds of medication. And really it was, you know, looking back, it was the beginning of my men's work, if you will. Because even as a child, what I, I wondered what happened to my father and what had happened to me. And how could I prevent that from happening to other families and other fathers and other men? And that really uh, became, you know, my life's work was to answer those questions. And I I think that you even um, later on found his journals. And he was really quite a wonderful writer. And he articulated this so clearly what was going on and, and his depression about not being able to find a job at, at that point. Uh, and I'm sure that that added a lot. And then later on, uh, you yourself, in, in your, I think, 40s, uh, you experienced not having a job. Your job kind of got phased out and suddenly, and you found yourself in uh, being depressed and 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 all those symptoms like were there. Uh, I mean, I'm just shocked about how here you are as a wonderful psychotherapist and you have all this knowledge, and yet we really have to constantly work on ourselves. It's it's not like okay, I know all this stuff, but you know we go through it. So. Uh, We'll talk about that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Dr. Jed Diamond. He's the author of 12 Rules for Good Men. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. Jed Diamond. He's the author of 12 Rules for Good Men. And Jed, I'd like to, to talk about rites of passage and about the new warrior. And you have participated in, and there are more and more ways that, that young men and men and women too can, can go through rites of passage now. But it's, it's not very prevalent in our culture. Why is it needed? Well, I think in traditional cultures, hunting-gatherer cultures in the past and um, Native American cultures, uh, you know, in the present, that the understanding was that in order to become an adult, in some ways you had to go through a rite of passage. Uh, and particularly with, with boys, the experience was that you needed to be removed from the home around you know the, the the feminine the mother energy and you needed to then be brought into the the company of older men and then you needed to learn some of the experiences of what it meant to be a male and these in the traditional ways these were healthy not what we call man box ideas but to learn care compassion love what it meant to you know, to be a, a strong man and, and fit in the, the culture that you came from. And what's happened in our modern culture is that we've lost those traditional ways of, of teaching. And the poet Robert Bly uh, talked about the necessity of particularly children, young boys, to go through these rites of passage to be in the company of older men. And in a very poetic way, he, he said that young boys need to hear the sound that male cells sing. And I thought that's such a beautiful and actual very real, I think, experience that it acknowledges that male cell, every cell of uh, my body is male. Every cell in my body uh, has an XY chromosome, just as every cell in a woman's body has two X chromosomes. And that on a cellular level, we have a sound. And I think it's a wonderful idea that there is a sound that male cells sing, that it's different from the sound that female cells sing. And so rites of passage, I think, are necessary in making the transition from childhood to adulthood. That's, we now go through this adolescence, but often without rites of passage. And then from what I call adulthood to super adulthood as we get into, you know, midlife, and probably a passage from life to whatever is after that. And increasingly, as you say, there are more organized ways that, that we're coming together to do that. And I've been part of a number of the the more organized rites of passage for males that I think are, are really, really helpful, and we need more and more of those in, in this troubled time where we need help making these transitions, because if we don't, uh, men get stuck, and some of the violence we talked about is a result of not having healthy rites of passage. Right. Men getting together necessarily isn't 
good or bad. There could be, uh, I think it's important for men to know the reason for meeting. Uh, is it for healing the soul of masculinity, healing uh, wounds, or is it to foment, foment and justify more violence, such as we saw on January 6, 2021, when there was an incursion on the Capitol, and those were uh, men, there were some women there too, but it was predominantly men, and it was very, very traumatizing. So this is men getting together with a different motivation. So can you say something about the motivation that you're talking about and the kinds of rites of uh, passage uh, that you're talking about? Well, I, th I think the core of this is that we inherently uh, have a need to bond with our our peers in different groupings, in different, that's built into the human psyche. We all need that. I think there's also a need to bond in same-sex groups where men come together in, as men and women come together as women. What's happened is that without the involvement of healthy fathers in our lives, so many men don't have that. We don't have healthy peer group supports. So that the result of something like the January incursion, from my perspective, was you had a lot of fearful, angry men who were not given healthy rites of passage, who thought the way to solve a problem or to get respect or to you know, deal with whatever losses they felt were happening was to, you know, use violence uh, and to attack. And that's the result not of men coming together, but of wounded men who never got the kind of coming together in healthy rites of passage that I think are necessary and are going on in, you know, in groups all over the country that I'm aware of, uh, you mentioned the Mankind Project is is one of those that I've been a part of that's been going for, uh, you know, 30 years or more that really brings men together to heal, to teach, to have them learn what it means to be male. My own men's group has been meeting now for, mentioned, 42 years. Uh, my wife, uh, Carlin, uh, says that one of the reasons she thinks that we've had a, a really loving, healthy 41-year marriage is that I've been in a men's group for 42 years. So this idea somehow that men come together to, you know, foment violence or put women down or men who do that are, are not initiated, healed men. The men that are coming together in the kind of groups that I work with are men that are loving and supportive and, you know, the women see us as contributing to healthy relationships as we learn to be real, deeply caring, compassionate, and powerful men in our, our lives, in our relationships, and in the world. You know, Aunt Jed, you there was one thing, a story that you told that moved me so deeply. It was when you were participating with the Sterling Institute which uh, had these rites of passage, and it was a rites of passage. And in this case, uh, a man, uh, a friend, a male friend, takes you to 
actually transports you to the gathering? Well, there's two parts of it. There's the the feeling that you get when a, another man who you've come to trust says, I want to take you to this gathering. It, it's reminiscent of, I think, the indigenous, you know, cultures when rites of passage were healthy, where, you know, really honored, caring men came to take the younger man. So part of it with, with this man was, I had known him, he was a friend, and he said, this is something I think you will want to go to. And as he talked about, I said, yes, I want to go to it. And he physically brought me there. You know, it, in this case, it was a, a way that I had to be driven. He, he literally took me there, drove me there, and then dropped me off. And I thought, okay, so now I'm at the, the event. And it was a very moving, powerful experience really felt deeply connected to the men that were there. And then at the end, we're all in a big circle. We're, you know, we're tired. We've been through, a, you know, an ordeal in a way. And, and as we're, you know, kind of uncertain with what's next, somebody steps to a microphone. So there's a large group and somebody steps to a microphone and they call out a name of one of the people that's gone. And it's, their sponsor. Each man has been sponsored to the weekend, and they call out, and as my name was called, uh, Jed Diamond, you know, it's Howard Lagarday. I've come back for you. And that feeling of having your name called, having the person who brought you there has come back for you. Because and I get emotional when I talk about this, the, the experience so many men have had, and, and women as well, is men who did not come back for us, men who may have harmed us, or men who may have abandoned us, or men who left us, or men who we've been longing for our whole lives for that man to come back for us, whether it was our father, or our good buddy, or our friend, or the man that died before we could, you know, hold him or be held by him. And so that being in that rite of passage circle where we feel that we've learned some depth of connection, of being reconnected to ourselves and these other men, and then having that special man come back for us. It's still oh. very, very moving as I describe it to you. Yes, yes. Thank you so much for describing that so vividly, and we all feel it in our hearts. And I, Jed, I just want to thank you so much for being part of New Dimensions and talking about this understanding of the awakening of the masculine soul. I mean, it's it's so important. Thank you for all your work. You're very welcome. It's a joy to be with you. It's a joy to be on New Dimensions. It's uh one of my favorite places to be, and you're one of my favorite people to be with. So thank you. Thank you so much, Jed. I've been speaking with Dr. Jed Diamond, and he is the author of 12 Rules for Good Men. And if you want to know more about his work, go to his website, menalive.com. That's menalive.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. 
You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3733. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.